Have you ever dreamed of taking hold of someone and dancing across the floor, feeling like you were floating on clouds? This is what ballroom dancers experience every single day. Today, I'm meeting with Andrew Miller and Adam Sheard, both former presidents of the UBC Dance Club, to discuss the ways we dance around communication in the ballroom and what it feels like to waltz through life as a man in the exciting world of dance sport. I asked Andrew and Adam what it takes to be a ballroom dancer, and we also discuss how dancing fits in with other forms of activity and the effective transitions between different modes of activity. It turned out to be a very zen-like moment of movement and stillness. Well, I was in high school and we took a ballroom dancing uh, section in our gymnasium class. And, uh, but in the summer, my mom took me to like a senior's ballroom class. And I walked in and I think the youngest age was about like 84 and I turned around. And then it so happened I was at UBC three months later and I walked in to the first bus stop right at UBC and it said, join UBC Dance Club. And so I was like, that sounds like a good idea. So I walked up to the ballroom there was a class of about 60 people in there, and one of the teachers was teaching waltz, and I think after about half an hour of waltz, I was hooked. Neat. Adam, how about you? Well, I similarly started in high school with some mandatory ballroom dance classes that we had in our PE class, and similar to Andrew, when I came to UBC, I was wandering around on clubs day, and I saw the UBC Dance Club booth mustered the courage to try it out and haven't looked back back ever since. (laughs) So who can be a ballroom dancer? What's the general level of fitness you need or any other requirements? Ballroom dancing is open to everybody. You know, in in the dance sport world, which is the competitive side, you can compete as a juvenile, junior, youth, adult, senior one, senior two, senior three, senior four, which takes you up to plus 65. Uh, So it's welcome to everybody. Um, in terms of your physical ability, that's really your own prerogative. If you want to uh, push the borders, you can become really fit and athletic through it. If you want to be more social, you can come to the Friday nights at Robson Square downtown, or you can go to the ballrooms on their social nights. So it's totally up to you. And my toes that have been <coughs> pierced through by women's stilettos are testament to the fact that you do not need a sense of rhythm <laughs> to do ballroom dancing. It's nice if you do have it, but it shouldn't deter you from having fun and critically injuring the person you're dancing with. <laughs> and I'd like to add, too, like I feel like a lot of times when, uh, you know, certain people, when they go to, like let's say, like a wedding or a club, maybe they don't feel the most comfortable on the dance floor. But ballroom dancing is great for people maybe who don't have that confidence because ballroom dancing gives you the steps to to draw upon. So it gives you confidence in those situations. Mm -hmm. Once you know what to do, you feel a lot more at ease there, I guess. Mm -hmm. Totally. So what are practices like? Wow, practices. I mean, that's where you, you know, it's, what do they say? 10,000 hours makes a master. So it's all about grinding those 10,000 hours out. Uh, It involves a lot of stretching, warm-up, you know, good exercise, communication, partnering skills, uh, focusing on a topic for the day, and then practice, 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 and see if you can make it better. It is quite intense if you decide to go the competitive route. Do either of you compete? I have competed, yeah. I was dancing competitively for 10 years, and, uh, you know, that would involve practices, as Adam said, four or five times a week, two hours each time. And that's like, you know, I, I feel like there's uh, maybe professional dancers that are able to travel and compete and practice, you know, three or four times a day. Um, but, you know, like at what I was doing, I had to either have a job or go to school at the same time. 
And so it's, it's a balance and it's, it's actually a very effective balance because when you're so focused at work or academics, then you allow yourself to be physical for a few hours and musical. And that's a really good way to transition through the day and make yourself tired for bed. <laughs> it's actually really difficult to balance this kind of competitive activity with a regular life, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes right now, quote unquote, a regular life because so I was competing a similar maybe for about eight or nine years, but I was doing Latin dance, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but uh, it, it is really, really tough to fit that into your daily life. Andrew and Adam had mentioned that they do standard and Latin ballroom dance. So I wanted to take the lead and learn more about the various genres, forms of ballroom dancing. Sure thing, yeah. I mean, ballroom's a very set program. There's, there's 10 dances, five standard, five Latin. You get a lot of variety there. It's great, you kind of, it's like pick your favorite color kind of thing. Uh, my favorite dance is definitely the slow foxtrot. It's a tough one, it's simple, but it's really elegant. Um, but there's lots of great dances, everybody has their favorite. Yeah, for me, even though I danced Latin for so many years, I really enjoy standard dances. And standard dances are kind of more of the, I'm not sure, how would you describe them? Connected, they're uh, in connected. a frame. Yeah. Uh, they're what we kind of consider maybe as more some of the more traditional yeah. dances, especially in maybe uh, some it, of the European. Perhaps more subtle. Subtle. More yeah. subtle. Yeah. Demure. Understated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me also, I love Foxtrot. And I think a large part of it is actually because of Andrew here, because he was dancing competitively. And I saw him when I first started out dancing, dancing Foxtrot. And it was so amazing. It was beginning to seem like there might be some shared parallels between the international repertoire of dance and the emergence of language variations in different regions. You know, I'm sure like any sport, you know, there's a set curriculum of these are the requirements for that. So for ballroom dancing, especially in the competitive world, the standard division has five dances. It's the same in any country you visit. Um, same thing with Latin, five dances for that. Exactly, yeah. So the international ballroom style is one that's practiced all over the world. However, there are some competing camps. So for example, there's like the American smooth style. And if you go to some <laughs> places, yeah, I know. It, it, that's, that sure is a name. Thinking about Americans, that's not exactly the first adjective that comes to mind. But uh, it really, uh, this in some places, depending, for example, if you go to Japan, while the majority of people do practice the international style, which is something that people in North America and Europe would also be able to relate to, there are quite a few places where they dance non-standard versions, like American Smooth, or for example, in Brazil, they have Brazilian Samba, which is nothing at all like what international style Samba dances for us. So it, we do have an overarching kind of uh, syllabus repertoire, yeah, yeah, repertoire syllabus of dancing, of dancing yeah. that's shared internationally. But there are, to be clear, other forms and, as well. And even within, like, so, you know, Adam was talking about American Smooth. Like, an American Smooth dancer would never compete against an international uh, standard dancer. They, they, it's not, it's comparing apples to oranges. Mm -hmm. But within international style, even uh, right now in, in Italy, the style that's growing there and in Russia too is quite a bit different than what you're seeing in, like, England. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so even country to country, and even within a country, people just choose... A slightly different path and you know I would like to say that the, I'm seeing either a very athletic approach or a very artistic approach mm -hmm. and who knows maybe in a few years that's going to split and you'll only be able to compete within the artistic side or the athletic side or you can go back and forth. 
Our conversation naturally progressed from forming partnerships to the important role of communication between partners. Adam, why don't you start us off? <laughs> well, I've had quite a few partners in my day. Dance partners. Dance partners. <laughs> just <laughs> and, to be clear. Just to be clear, yes. And just to start at the UBC Dance Club, they do have quite a few opportunities for people to meet partners. They have partner searches and little social events that you can go to. And quite often I'd meet partners at social events. However, uh, as I started dancing more and more, you have to really uh, make an effort to find a partner because it's difficult to find someone who's at the relative level that you're at. And uh, when I was in Korea, of course, like I said, they're very serious about their dancing there. They have professional networks, uh, kind of like LinkedIn or some of the things we have for... Dance in. Dance in. <laughs> Where basically you go on and you would post videos of yourself and you would actually write a resume of what you do, what you can do, what your availability is, where you live, things like that. And you'd be match made with dance partners there. And it would be really interesting because you'd be match made actually by the coaches. It's almost even like an arranged marriage. And the dancers themselves don't have very much say in the matter. It's mostly yeah. to do with their coaches, which I believe, uh, I'm not sure. It's I, similar here. It's similar here? Yeah, definitely. I think here a lot of the professionals, you know, they work with their students. They may have, you know, 5, 10, 20 students that are competitive. And they, they talk to the other pros and they say, oh, you know, do you have any partners coming up? And they're really good at kind of putting those people together. When you go to the dance world, it is a very small pool, especially here in Vancouver. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, everybody already and you just want to find the, you know, the, at the end, there might only be three people roughly at your level, roughly the right height for you. And from there, you just kind of, are you available? No. Are you available? No. Are you available? <laughs> yep. That's my partner. <laughs> Make it work. Make it work. So, and I mean, it does like, you know, even like sometimes height's not even a problem. There's a couple that competed from Russia, Murat and Elena. He must've been over six feet and she was about five, five. And that is a big gap for standard, but they made it work. He just bends his knees and they came to like number six in the world for a while. Wow. So it's, it's, you know, heights there, but it's not critical. So, uh, how do you find a dance partner? Get out there, go to social events. It's a great time and meet new people. When you're holding your partner in standard dances, you have a lot less freedom. Like your hold has to... They're right sh- next to you. Yeah, they're right in front of you. They're, yeah, they're, they're right there. Yeah. And you have to keep your frame, what we call it. Frame is, you could probably describe this. It's the position, the positionality of your arms. It's and like a bodies. hug with your arms up. A hug with your arms up. That's a great way of saying it. And in Latin, we have a lot of what we call open holds where we would just be holding the hands or something. In those situations, of course, height doesn't make a huge difference unless uh, you have psychotically short arms or little like T-Rex a, you're arms. a T-Rex. If you're a T-Rex, you are not going to be doing Latin very well. You might get in to do some standard, but I think you might have might some be, trouble finding partners. That might be the evolution <laughs> of the new style of Latin, That's you know, right. T-Rex Latin. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, in standard, you're you're really fixed to your partner but in latin you have this really intricate connection through your hand that goes up through your arm through your shoulder down through your body to your hips and so basically your hips are sending signals to your partner through your body through your arm through your shoulder through your hand into your partner's hand and that connection is so difficult it's so complex I, I would have to say that your my relationship with my partner is 
incredibly sensual but completely platonic. It's 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 if you were to take your body, like if you've seen uh, Tron and and you download your mind and body into a computer game, it's like that with your partner. You can communicate without talking. You have a complete understanding of what's going on with another person, more so than you would have in any other way in your life. I feel. And uh, like immediately when we start practicing, I can tell ahead of time if something's going to happen simply based on contact and connection. So it's a very profound thing when you can develop a relationship and a connection with your partner. Yeah, in Latin, it's it's quite fascinating because a lot of the time the style of the Latin dances they're often called the romantic dances because when you're dancing, for example, the rumba or the, the samba or cha-cha-cha, a lot of times you're portraying this kind of sexual tension, this sexual flirtation. flirtation. Like you're really into each other. And a lot of dancers, like they're, they'll be coming almost lip to lip, face to face. And a lot of moves that uh, a lot of the female dancers would have and well, in the cases of same-sex partners, well, the male dancers who are dancing the follow part, uh, a lot of the moves actually include physical touch where you'd actually, for example, slide your hand or or gently caress your partner's face. Right, it's highly suggestive. Yes, and what's really interesting, though, is, well, especially in my experience in Korea, uh, because we practice so much together, in many cases, a lot of dance partners, even the youth couples, live either together or very close in their vicinity. And for them, it's really interesting because the amount of time you spend with the person, it's almost like a sibling relationship. You, like Andrew said, you know what each other is thinking. You uh, understand each other's feelings. You understand each other's bodies, how they move, how they work, how they communicate. And at the same time, you're, you both have this mutual understanding that on the floor, you are this highly sexual, like romantically involved looking unit, but you both understand that you're, well, in many cases, you're not, you're just putting on an act. And the amount that people really put their, their, their hearts and souls into these dances it, it's really difficult that the the boundary, the line can become very easily blurred, as you can see with a lot of professional uh, dancers who become couples <laughs> eventually yeah. because of just the way that the dance is and how the dance... Because you can only pretend that to a certain amount until it actually happens, right? It's kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy where, <laughs> you know, you go into it saying, hey, yes, let's be dance partners. We're going into this. Let's dance together. But eventually it becomes a thing where you are a thing. Sometimes. And sometimes. Uh, but again, not always. But again, when I was in Korea, like off the floor even, we'd be uh, eating together all the time, of course, because we're always practicing together. Uh, we'd be helping each other when one of us is crying, the other one is there. It's a very deep relationship. I'd say in some cases it's even deeper than a, than like a best friendship, like a BFF sort of thing. And it's really akin to like a brother and sister like kind of like a sibling sort of relationship. It's it's very deep. It's very complex. So how do you build that trust with a dance partner? And how do you know when they trust you or you trust them? It, I think the trust actually comes quite naturally because when you start dancing, you're working on new steps together. Let's say you go to a professional, they give you a routine, 
and maybe both of you haven't done all those steps together. So you're both learning them together. And I feel like that gives, you know, when I'm learning, I'm maybe vulnerable because I haven't done it. So I have to figure out how to do it. Same thing with my partner. So when you're spending time with somebody, with another person in maybe a more learning, vulnerable situation, you're being very open. And I think that does I think that generates trust between each other and then as you start dancing maybe your dances only take you around half the floor they're not as large as they become but then you both grow them together and so you know if I try to stride longer you know she'll feel the same length and it's like oh yeah I can do that as well and so you build that confidence and you get comfortable you know taking it in different directions putting new musical accents and, and you do it together so it's it's easy I think the trust part in a physical sense, I kind of feel like it's like those psychological trust falls, you know, yeah, you have someone standing behind you and then you close your eyes and fall backwards. Just make sure they know to fall backwards. Yes. <laughs> it's like the entire dance is a trust fall. Totally. Because every moment, like if you're doing Viennese waltz and, and you do something wrong, he or she is going to be flying out the window. It's going <laughs> to, things are going to happen. It's not going to be very good. That's true. It's in your best interest to make sure your partner trusts you. Yeah. What about if something isn't working with your partner? <laughs> Do you give each other feedback or instruction? Yes. Uh, and everybody does this in whatever way they see fit. Uh, I've been to many practices where people are just yelling a tirade of information at their partner. <laughs> I can't believe that that's helpful to either of them. Uh, so, you know, my definitely one of my biggest recommendations to partners is if you can have communication with somebody about improving it's not going to be a good partnership. It's going to be a one-sided partnership with somebody just yelling at the other person. And that's not going to do anybody benefit. So you need to be able to communicate, to learn together. We're both in this together. If, if one of us is the weaker partner, let's bring them up together. And then we'll both get to the same level and we can improve together. To be able to communicate about the dancing, I feel that you learn something about yourself. Because if you feel like there's a way to improve something, maybe there's not enough drive or maybe the angle's wrong... At first, you don't know how what you're feeling, and you don't know how to vocalize that. And then over time, you realize, oh, maybe I need to open my hip, or you, you, you become more aware internally of your, how your body works. And that really helps you to understand your body and to be able to communicate it, which I think is something that you learn through ballroom. So there's this loop of realization and communication. Totally. And it gets deeper as you go. Another aspect of communication might be between the dancers and an audience, like other dancers, judges, maybe viewers. How does that work? And what should viewers be looking for? We, had, we took a lesson from one of the world uh, top dancers, uh, Luca and Lorraine Bariki, And they, one of the first things they said is that each partner has a role towards each other partner that their job is to make your partner look like the most beautiful, most desirable person in the ballroom. And so that connection, you know, your my job as the lead is to make my partner shine so that all the audience, all they can do is just watch the beauty of her dancing and, and how she's able to produce these amazing shapes and movements. Yeah, that, that's all I heard. I never heard anything about her making me look good. It was, he, it's all about her. He, he was Italian, you know, he grew <laughs> up in like a culture of like bravado and, and his dancing was just so passionate. So, mm -hmm. but he did say right after that, he said, it's the same for the lady. The lady has to make the gentleman look, you know, beautiful, poised, hold his position, beautiful frame. It works in both directions. You know, if only one partner shines, then you're going to lose half the audience. So you both have to make each other look just stunning. I find there's also a really big difference between standard and Latin in terms of the communication with the audience. Because in Latin, 
a lot of our routines are designed specifically for us to interact with the audience. Like there will be a lot of things that we do. Uh, like I was saying before, a lot of women make some hand gestures or they caress the men or something. And that can even extend to the audience on occasions. We'll be blowing kisses to someone in the audience hmm. uh, where both the men and the woman, uh, there'll be a man will be flirting with a woman in the audience while a woman, the, his partner will be flirting with all the men in the audience. And it's a very interactive and engaging activity. And when I danced standard, I didn't feel the same amount. I'm not sure if you, cause I, I remember for standard, like the woman often you will do something where she will like a line, like a line. She'll yeah. be displayed to the audience and yeah. she'll smile to them. And the gentleman will be, usually looking in looking to the left where he's supposed to be yeah. looking there. Yeah. Uh, but in Latin, you'll be actively looking at the audience. You're either looking directly at the partner or you're looking directly at the audience. And we're often going back and forth between these two. Totally. Thinking about dancers and audiences, I began to wonder about some of the stereotypes around ballroom dance, particularly with regards to gender roles. Yeah, I remember when I first started ballroom dancing and just especially in high school, the view of what ballroom dancers are and and especially in terms of their gender. A lot of people had a lot of kind of false beliefs about uh, gender and ballroom dancing. And especially even in university, when I first started, I remember in my first year and I started talking to some of my friends and I said, yeah, I, I just started doing some ballroom dancing. And a lot of them were saying, oh, it's a woman's sport. It's so such a namby-pamby girly kind of thing, like just, uh, oh, you and your arms and like moving them all over the place, like no one cares kind of thing. Like, what, what, what's wrong with you? Why don't you do like a, a real sport, like like football or something like that? And so that was definitely one of the first things that I, I don't want to say I struggled with it, but it was something that I encountered. And that was definitely a stereotype that that I was exposed to when I first started. And I think maybe more than just ballroom dancing, but like as your kids growing up and, you know, you have sisters or friends, if you're, you know, you see that the girls often sign up for ballet or, you know, dance classes mm -hmm. and the guys are off to their soccer or baseball. Um, and so that's like growing up in, in Vancouver, that's what my experience was. Mm -hmm. But when I was traveling for my dance, like I was over in England and Italy and France and it was, it was very much the opposite. Like, men predominated the ballroom scene over there. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that it was maybe even 50-50. And so it depends on the culture that you grew up in. Like, ballroom was just part of it. Like, from a young age in Italy, the kids would be dancing all the time. And that was the norm. That was their soccer or their baseball over there. So it really depends on the culture that you grew up in. Yeah. I think it also has to do a lot with the culture and what we think predominantly... Uh, about ballroom dance in general, like you're mentioning in places like Italy and England, people will grow up from a young age with no perhaps social stigmas behind dancing. Uh, but out here, of course, we still have that kind of feeling. And I think it's being alleviated somewhat by the new movies like Step Up and whatnot that show uh, men dancing in a non- Stigmatized uh, non-stigmatized way. So I think that definitely helps. And over time, it, it is definitely going to improve. But So maybe changing media representations a little bit will also have a positive effect as yeah, we move forward. Definitely. And I think, you know, it's just that yeah, there's only so much time children have to do things mm -hmm. when they're learning new skills and activities. And so really it comes down to the parents. Like, you know, like when they sign them up for soccer or baseball mm -hmm. or we need to let ballroom be an option for them. And that's, you know, a, how do you change society? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. 
in the United States, for ballroom to flourish, football must suffer. (laughs) (laughs) Best line ever. (laughs) It seems like ballroom dance is somewhat built on traditional gender roles in that the man leads the woman. But it also seems like there needs to be a balance of strength between both partners. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of gender in ballroom dance? How dancers might embody that or how dance might challenge what it means to be a man or a woman? Totally. Um, you know, so as what Adam was saying late earlier, like when you are there, you, you're, it's not that you're acting, it's that you're choosing which professional feelings to emote to the audience. And so in a way, that acting, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're a woman, you can act either as a very, you know, more feminine woman or a more masculine woman. And you can choose which role you want to portray. Same thing as a man. You can be a more masculine man or a more... I'm not sure the word masculine is right, but you could be more like bravado, more macho, or you could be more, you know, elegant and throw your arms up and do some frills. And both are totally acceptable. And I think in the same sex dancing, you know, if you're following, if you're a man in the following position, there's lots of beautiful flourishes that you'd be able to achieve. Something I've noticed a lot, especially with events with our UBC dance club here, we often have same sex dance competitions uh, just at little events like the Christmas party or at the Valentine's party. And I've noticed, interestingly, that when the women are dancing in the male position, they don't necessarily always take on kind of a masculine sort of uh, role in the dance. Sometimes they'll dance as a lead, but in a feminine way. And similarly, some men or even other women dancing as a follow won't necessarily dance in a feminine way. So I feel like uh, as we become a little bit more uh, open to different kinds of partnerships and different mixtures of genders and gendered expression, uh, things are definitely changing in ballroom dance as well that will accommodate that. And uh, it, yeah, there are the traditional gender roles, but again, to say that leading is male these days is becoming, I think, a lot less pronounced. Yeah. And one of the top couples comes to mind, Arunas and Katusha. They, Arunas, the, the lead, Katusha, the follow. Um, Arunas is a very, uh, he doesn't, he's not like a firecracker on the floor. He's very reserved. Um, you know, he's all about setting up his partner for success. And Katusha is definitely the powerhouse. She's the firecracker. So if your traditional gender idea was that the man is macho and brave and strong and powerful, the number one couple in the world right now, I would say, is flipped. Uh, Katusha's the one, if you watch them dancing, she will power across the floor. She will lead the rotations. And Arunas is really there giving her the support that she needs to accomplish those things. And they've been number one for eight years now. So if that says anything, it can be power can be on either side. You just got to make sure that you work together and, and make a beautiful outcome. I think it's really interesting to look at the strength dynamic because one of the, the focuses here is how is the power balanced? If you're in a lead position, are you necessarily overpowering the woman? It's it's not really the case. Uh, in Latin dancing, the woman exerts just as much, if not even more, in many occasions, strength than the man. And both of them, both the man and the woman, or both partners in the dance couple, are demonstrating an equal amount of physical power in, in this dance. So a lot of people I've heard a lot of people in the audience saying, wow, well, you really threw her around the floor or uh, you really led her around and and she does everything. You're such a great lead. You can make her do anything you want. And it's not really true. 
I'm not making her do whatever I want. She is following, but it's not only that, there's a communication going back and forth. When I do a basic step in, for example, the Roomba, when I give her a signal through my hips, through my shoulder, through my arm, through my hand, goes through her hand, through her arm, through her shoulder, through her hips, what happens then is her hips move and then send another signal back through her hips, through her arm, through my hand, through my arm, through my shoulder, back to me. So things are going both ways. It's not just a, a one-directional relationship. Right. I'm getting the sense that it's very dialogical. Yes. But you're, one of the questions you are asking earlier is, how might it challenge what it means to be a man or a woman? And I think the bigger part of that is that what it means to be a man has changed over the last 50 years. What it means to be a woman is changing. So I think that you know maybe the traditional view of the bravado, macho, cowboy man I think that view has long extinguished. And I think now to be a man is just to be yourself. You know, whatever you feel is comfortable for yourself, go out and do that, you know. And then for same thing for a woman. Whatever you feel is comfortable to be yourself, go out and do that. And then when you're dancing on the floor together, that's where you have to figure out your strengths and weaknesses and improve together. I found myself wondering about the historical bases of these gender roles and representations in ballroom dance. The paso doble. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> As a man, you have to make sure your pectoral muscles are about three feet in front of you, like the matador bullfighters. And hold the coin in hold between your coin. butt cheeks. Hold the coin in between your butt cheeks. Um, you know, but these are all, this is acting, right? Like, this, you're taking an idea and you're just embellishing the idea for show. Uh, so, you know, you can, anybody can emulate that action, that feeling. Um, but in terms of the presentation, typically that, that matador feeling and the paso doble has been more traditional and successful. Um, same thing in the tango, you know, a very passionate dance. I think it came from the, you know, the brothels in Argentina, you know, yes. where maybe there were ladies of the night and men who were interested in them and how they would come and, together. And their hardened leather pants yes, that were the chaps. <laughs> solidified in the shape of the horse riding that they'd been doing before so they couldn't actually walk around properly. I like that. That's yes. where you get the tango legs That's from. Right. I love it. I love tango it. legs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're kind of a little bit Elvis, a little bit cowboy. <laughs> I wanted to know what it's like for a newcomer to ballroom dance to master all these different modalities all while dealing with an array of sensory inputs in addition to communicating effectively with a partner. In short, how it feels to put it all together. At the beginning, it's quite tough. Uh, you know, a lot of people when they're first dancing, uh, if they don't come from a musical background or if, they're not, if it's not natural for them, balancing themselves with the music, is, it takes a bit of time. You know, it takes me even a year to really understand it fully. And we see couples that have been dancing for a few years and they're, sometimes they lose the beat when they're at a competition. So that's a really big struggle for people. But when you get it, it's wonderful. It's just, it's night and day. You're, you're on the music. It feels great. Um, some of the other things you're balancing, you know, it's when you're, when you're working with your partner, seeing if you're moving the same amount, rotating the same amount with your partner. So you're constantly learning and figuring out the balance between each other. Should I go this much, this much, three-eighths of a turn? But you get there. So at the beginning, your practices, it's tough. You're learning. You're making mistakes. and then You will be stepping on others. You will be stepping on others. They will be stepping yeah. on you. Uh, but when competition day comes, it's perfect every time. <laughs> wink, wink. <Flawless. laughs> it's always a work in progress. I got to say, I came with a strong musical background. And when I first started ballroom dancing, I was like a drunken elephant <laughs> on the floor. Like, I could not stand up. I could not balance my hips were flying all over the place like I was adding way too much hips in my Latin dance like you also had the awesome pants that accentuated your hips that's right I had the, the super <laughs> yeah. those are so awesome pants and uh, yeah so for people who are 
thinking about getting into ballroom dancing, it, it is pretty challenging in the beginning, but don't give up. Don't be too disconcerted by that. But yes, it is very, very challenging because you have the music coming at you. Not only do you have like music coming at you, but music with different, uh, different rhythms, uh, different timings. You have four, four rhythm, you have three, four rhythm, you have, you have the waltz, which is the three, four rhythm. You have cha-cha-cha, which is four, four rhythm. You have uh, all these different dances with different rhythms and different timings and trying to internalize that while moving your feet, moving your body, making an effort to move and communicate with your partner whilst not looking like a total idiot. It's very challenging. And, and that's yeah. what practice is for. Yes. Yeah. Armed with an understanding of the nature of ballroom dance, I naturally wanted to know more about the pedagogical approaches involved in teaching and learning. I took computer programming for the first time last year and I learned C++. And to me, I thought programming was all going to be, what, what do I type? What are the words that I need to use to make something happen? And that was like the least important part of it. You learn the syntax and then the, the amazing part is you learn how to be creative with it. You learn how to play jazz with what you just learned. And so it's the same thing for ballroom. The steps to me are really irrelevant. They're just a tool that allows you to understand ballroom. And then once you've got those tools in your belt, you can do whatever you want with them. You can cut a step in half and, and add another one to the end of it. You can, any per permeation you can do is totally fine. And in the end, I think when you're a high-level, well-accomplished, well-practiced dancer, you're like a jazz musician. You have full freedom to do and explore whatever you like. You can stop in the middle of a musical phrase. You can start again a little bit later. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, and, and you see amazing athletes, uh, dancers, who, you know, they, they bump into a couple on the floor, so they lose the routine that they're in, and then all of a sudden they pull out something amazing that is not part of their routine, but they're just enjoying the music and, and reading the room. I think it's important to draw comparison between dancing in a competition and dancing socially socially totally. because social dancing is a lot more like free yeah like a jazz musician there's more room for it. improvisation there. exactly yeah you improvise you do what you like you can just have fun on the floor and i think that's one of the most fun parts of dancing is yeah. being able to do that but in competitions of course you have your routine you've because we have the dance floor, which has the two long sides and two short sides, we typically have routines that plan for how many steps and what kinds of movements you're going to do along the long side, how you're going to turn, how are you going to go along the short side, how are you going to turn again, and then repeat the whole thing. Uh, so there are some differences depending on whether you're social dancing or yeah. competing. But as you practice, your routine becomes second nature. It's very easy to, to yes. follow. Have either of you planned routines or done choreography for either yourself or others? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was. I looked through the, um, the syllabus for some steps and, and made up a little routine for uh, actually Adam right here. Yes. And uh, it was pretty fun. You know, I learned a lot. You know, when you have to teach something, it really forces you to understand it in a different way. And... Uh, and so I was, you know, it was wonderful. You can look up all the steps, get all the technical angles, and it's very precise. And then when you execute it, everybody has their own style of how they execute it. But it was challenged, but it was really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've done some more basic ones. When I was in Korea, I was helping teach some classes at some of the universities there for ballroom and basic Latin and stuff like that. And I, I choreographed a few things. It was quite fun. It's, it's interesting to kind of put things together because it's it's not such a simple process. We have these manuals 
where you actually have moves that can go to different moves and some moves can't go to different moves. And so, for example, move A can transition into move C, but move B cannot transition to move C, but can transition to move G, which can transition to move D. Uh, you all understand, right? <laughs> yeah. So there are these patterns and it's interesting because you have to go at it from that kind of structured approach whilst at the same time kind of putting your own, like as Andrew was saying when he was choreographing something for me, putting your own kind of feel, your own flavor into it because every choreographed dance has those two parts, the structure and the flavor of whoever designed it. And then you have the, the expression of the person who's dancing it in reflection of the structure and the flavor of the person who designed it, right? So you have these different aspects that really make the dance into this, 3D, even 4D yeah. kind of Definitely interactive 4D. entity. Yeah, There's a vocabulary here, and it yeah. sounds like there's also a grammar in the sense of rules that need to be followed or things that can or cannot be combined. So how is dance like language? I think the basic, you know, like if you were to look at a sentence and there's like words, spaces, words, spaces, the equivalent in ballroom is like there's a left foot and a right foot. So you can do a step, but if you're finishing on the wrong foot, you're not going to be able to do the next step. So you have to follow that kind of basic structure like you would in a sentence. Um, but after that, you can get pretty flexible. When you're starting, you go into the syllabus category where the steps are, are pre-organized. Uh, you can choose which steps to do, but you have to follow the levels. And eventually, after you graduate, you go to the open level where you can choose the steps as you like. Could you talk a little bit more about the syllabus level and the open level? Yeah, for sure. So syllabus, when you start off, most people start as a newcomer. I did. I think Adam did. Mm -hmm. And you haven't really done ballroom before, so they normally teach you like a waltz basic or a cha-cha basic. And in the syllabus, the professionals have gone through years of experience and they've said, these three or four steps are great steps to learn as a beginner. And then as you, as you finish maybe you know, six months to a year, you can start learning the bronze steps, move to the silver steps gold steps, I think there's steps for pre-championship level, and then at the top there's the opener championship level where you're allowed to do any step at any time. Even if it doesn't work, nobody's going to penalize you. Obviously, if your whole routine doesn't work, it's not going to look great, but you're legally allowed to do it, or at least ballroom legally allowed to do it on the floor. And you're allowed to introduce your own steps as well. Introduce your own steps. You can be very creative. Most of the time, people follow the general mm -hmm. pattern, nice natural turn, spin turn, do the rest of the routine. But over time, just like language, it dance evolves. And just like how we get these new words like... like chillax. Chillax. <laughs> uh, in the same way in dance, when someone develops something like a barrel roll or totally. something like that. The tipple chasse. The tipple chasse. Uh, but I feel like we can really draw that comparison. Language and of speaking spoken language and our verbal oral language and dance language, it they both evolve over time based on people's input. When you grow up in the world, you have to interact with the people around you. And ballroom dancing gives you a really sophisticated tool belt with interacting with people. Uh, you learn how to communicate over challenges. You learn how to communicate over successes. And you learn how to grow with people. And I think that's really what life is all about. So valuable lesson, great be being able to interact with people. I'd say the same thing. It's such an amazing way to learn how to integrate with other people and consider other people. And that's one thing for me that I, I feel like I've improved a lot upon uh, because when you're not doing ballroom dance, you don't realize that 
there is this kind of social and physical give and take in the world. And there's a balance that needs to be enacted. And we often take it for granted, I think, when we talk with people that we want to say what we want to say, but we don't often consider the implications of what, what we say or what we do has on other people. Or even if we do, we don't really consider the full extent of it, where in ballroom dance, it's so, it's so very conspicuous and it's so obvious the effect that you have on other people just through uh, the physical reactions they have, the emotional reactions they have. And I think that's a very valuable lesson. For me, ballroom dance has really shaped my social life. And I was actually really shy. And I know it's really hard to believe now because nowadays I... Inconceivable. I'm, it's inconceivable. I, I announce for massive events. I am a teacher now, so I teach classes with tens of people. And I don't have that kind of uh, introverted personality anymore because really when I got into ballroom dance, it taught me a lot about being open and it it helped me meet people. It helped me be able to interact with other people. So that's been very meaningful for me and it's resulted in uh, some really wonderful relationships developing. I find for me, uh, the meaningful nature of ballroom dancing comes from you know, in life, you know, you know, you go to school, then you have to grow up, maybe get a job. And it's like, how, how am I going to contribute to the world? And ballroom dancing came about for me, like, it, it allowed me to kind of have a purpose. It's like, it allows you to explore your body physically, to explore music, and to do something that's like healthy, like it's a good exercise. And so it just became a very, it became an outlet for expanding my expertise in a certain thing called ballroom dancing. And it just so happens to have wonderful music and meet great people. So, I mean, that's why it's meaningful to me. Actually, I had quite a lot of experience, like for me myself as well, like I mentioned, I was quite introverted before and I've also had a lot of students, uh, especially when I was teaching in South Korea. I started a UBC dance club in Korea and I had a lot of students come there who had social anxiety issues. And it was such a great way because for a lot of these people, even like looking at someone, let alone touching someone, can be a massive challenge. And uh, the music and kind of the atmosphere of ballroom dancing, it really helped a lot of these people open up. And slowly but surely, we'd move from uh, listening to music and kind of feeling the movement to looking up and noticing that there are other people around you who are kind of connected with this music to finally actually touching someone and dancing to this music. And I had some absolutely remarkable, for me, they were just so touching moments where people who had these chronically social anxiety issues, uh, they were able to come out and they were able to overcome some of these because of that. With a rich and lengthy interview behind us, I challenged Andrew and Adam to summarize their perspectives and experiences with ballroom dancing in a single word. For me, the word is connection. Connection to the music, connection to your partner, connection to the audience. For me, it would definitely just be social. It's a great connector for human beings. It's what brings a lot of people together. It facilitates some amazing dynamic social relationships and it's 
just a great way to be a human being on this little blue marble. Thanks a lot for joining me today to share your insights. I've learned a lot. Where can people go to learn more about ballroom dance? Well, it just so happens. Uh, Robson Square <laughs> Summertime Dance Series, Woo! June 29th, Friday night, every Friday over the summer. The last one's the end of August. Uh, starts at about 7.30. It's in the ice rink behind the art gallery. Free dancing, free lessons, free shows. Great place to learn. Amazing. One of my favorite things to do in the summer. It's fantastic. It's so cool. You get to meet lots of awesome, fun people. You'll see people like Andrew and I there. Dimitri will be there too, strutting his stuff. Right, Dimitri? It's possible. There, no promises. There will definitely be a Dimitri there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, of course... Uh, right here on our lovely UBC campus, we got the UBC Dance Club. Yeah, yeah. UBCDanceClub.com. We have, they have the social media, they have Facebook, they have Twitter. Summer dance class? Summer dance classes. Sign up soon. I believe they're starting in the next few weeks here. I don't think it's too late to sign up. So go sign up for these classes. It's uh, not too late yourself. to sign up. It's not too late. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. never too late. <laughs> but definitely go and check it out. Have some fun. That sounds great. We'll put links to some of these resources in the show notes as well, just to make sure people can find them and get out there. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Dimitri. No problem. Once again, I'm Dimitri Detweiler, and this is Multipodality. You can find us on Twitter at Multipodality, or visit us at our website at multipodality.wordpress.com to find out more about us and see some of our other podcasts. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, and please share this with someone you know who might also enjoy it. Multipodality is supported by the Department of Language and Literacy Education at the University of British Columbia. Our executive producer is Kay Hare. Our production coordinator is Nina Conrad. Our social media coordinator is Lisa Navarro. Our technical coordinator is Adam Sheard. And I'm your host, Dimitri Detweiler. Thank you for listening. It looked like he was dancing on a cloud, so that's that's what I feel now. When I dance the foxtrot, I feel like I'm just like Andrew, just flying <laughs> through the sky, dancing upon clouds. You're, you're too flattering. But <laughs> so, it's funny that you say clouds, because when I learned the foxtrot, it has a different rise and fall than the waltz, which you start with. And uh, the, the analogy they give you for foxtrot is to, to be like a rainbow, mm. you know? So maybe up in the clouds, think like a rainbow. Mm. There you go. It's kind of like... How racehorse owners, like when they're deciding deciding which horses they want their, Where's this their going? star horses to mate with. This is they, different than ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> this is not part of ballroom. But it really is similar. <laughs> it really is similar to this. I got this big stallion, Andrew Miller here. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, at the top level, if you are stiff, it's not going to help at all. You have to be soft and flexible. This is one of the only occasions where that's true, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes.